good morning. My name is Joshua, and I'm the campus pastor at uh, Hillsborough Village uh, for Ethos Church. And uh, I'm just I'm so grateful to be here this morning. And, um, you know, before I even get into the, the teaching in this really awesome story out of Luke 7, verses 36 through 50, um, I just want to just encourage you with the word I felt on my heart this week. Uh, first, this, this word is, is for you. You know, I used to, to work for a guy at a car lot, and I'm from West Kentucky, so he's really country. And he said, hey, I know you can hear me, but you're not listening. He had this, like, really serious country twang that I can't do very well. I've grown out of that. And uh, No, but he, he said, I know you can hear me, but you're not listening. And what he was saying was, I know you hear the words coming out of my mouth, but you're not actually processing them and listening, so you're not getting the job done. And uh, I just think this morning we need ears that, that we hear what God's saying and we listen to them, that this word is for you this morning. Not for you to think about, oh, who could, who could appreciate this word, but it's for you specifically. And then after you're done receiving it and letting your heart like receive the words of the Lord, this word is also for someone that you know, and you're the messenger. Like it's for someone that you know that will never click on this YouTube link, they'll never hear this sermon, but they know you, and you might be the only Bible they ever read. And so as God speaks to you this morning, first receive it, be a listener, and then secondly, think of who in your life needs to hear this word from the Lord, this beautiful story in Luke. And so I wanna start us off just for the sake of my own heart, just to pray, to pray over this morning that the Spirit would help me navigate this word, would lead us, would speak to us, minister to us. So let me pray. Father, I don't pray because that's what preachers are supposed to do before they preach. Um, God, I just, I pray because I'm just so aware of how much I need you, Lord. Holy Spirit, I just, I need you. Uh, God, you're so holy and perfect. God, I remember, I think the first time we ever led our church through a, a, t a month of prayer, we were meeting at TSU, and I remember, uh, I think it was Brandon, he said, if Jesus walked in the room right now, what would you do? And I remember I just let that, that like visual like really sink into my heart, like what would happen, Jesus, if you walked into the room? God, I'm just reminded of what I felt I would do in this story in Luke, that this woman, she sees you and she just falls at your feet, just weeping, just too good to be true that she's in your presence, God. And I pray that this morning, we would just ask ourselves, and what would I do if Jesus walked into the room right now? And then God, for us to realize that your presence is actually among us. God, that you have made yourself available that one day we'll see you physically, God, but in spirit, you're in us and you're around us. And God, as we, as we break open the word, as we look into Luke 7, help our hearts, God, in faith to acknowledge that your presence is in fact here, that you're with us, Lord. God, we need a lot of things in a day like today, in a time like this, but what we need the very most, and it's not even close, is your presence. God, we need you. Give us eyes to see, Father. Give us ears to hear, hearts and minds to receive and to put into action what you lead us into, Jesus. We love you in Jesus' name, amen. So I read, I read Luke 7 uh, a few weeks ago, and honestly, I haven't been able to get it out of my mind, so I figured I might as well just go ahead and preach it. And that, man, this story is so captivating. It's, it's really stunning in a lot of ways. And before I even unpack that, as I was thinking about my own life, as I was thinking about Luke 7 and my own life and my experiences, I was reminded of a few stories that I, I went through personally. 
when I was 21 and I was in college, I was living this double life of sorts. Well, not even of sorts. It was just a straight up double life. And uh, I was leading a ministry on, on the campus that I was at and on, during the week. And then on the weekends, I was going and getting as intoxicated as I possibly could. And like that was just kind of my life. I had always like, loved substances and alcohol and whatever else. And, and one weekend, this all caught up to me in a pretty bad way. Uh, I remember I was—actually, I barely remember. I was really drunk, and I was driving, and I was dropping off a friend at uh, her apartment on campus. And I got in an accident in a glorified parking lot, basically. And there was someone in the car that I hit, and uh, no one was physically hurt, but it was pretty bad. And, man, it was a really terrible night. Uh, I got arrested. I got suspended from school. I mean, it was awful. And I remember sitting in jail uh, for the first time in my life knowing that the people that are about to come pick me up, it won't be one of my friends, it won't be one of my buddies, it's gonna be my parents. And you know when you're 21 and you think you're a grown adult, and then you realize you totally rely on your parents? <laughs> and uh, in that moment I felt 12, I'm like, oh my goodness, my parents are my only way I'm getting out of this situation and I'm gonna be in so much trouble. <laughs> Any sense of independence was stripped away from me that day. And I remember sitting in jail and then the officer saying, hey, someone's here to pick you up. And I looked through, I think there was glass, I can't remember, but. I look through the doorway and I see my parents and I'm like, it's about to go down. <laughs> I'm in so much trouble right now. And the first thing that my mom did was hug me. And I remember being like, mom, do you know that you're at jail right now? Like, do you know, do you know where you're at? Um, I didn't do, I did something kind of bad, you know what I mean? And, and she hugs me and the first thing she says is, Josh, you could have been dead and you're not. Now, to be clear, um, she got to get her words out on me. Uh, her, and her, her and my dad both got to let me know how they felt about my decisions, and it was, uh, it was pretty intense. But I think about some of the sequence of events that happened in that season. They were supporting me in my college, and ironically, I was about to start my internship at this very church that I'm preaching for right now, like the next week. And I remember sitting with Dave and my parents at the basement of the cannery, ironically a bar slash church, and talking with them and, and uh, just telling them the situation. And I remember my parents going, if Dave will let you stay here, we'll let you, go to, we'll let you continue to go to school once you're reinstated from your suspension, and we'll let you do this internship. And I think about this moment where what I deserved is not what I got. Like I'd done it, I, I was so entitled. I was so reckless. I hurt people, even though they were physically okay. I, I, I messed people's, I messed up people's lives. Like there were people that, that had to pay consequences for something that I did. My parents didn't have to keep paying for school. Ethos certainly didn't have to take me on as an intern. I was not the poster child of an intern at a church. And yet here I am today because of this grace that was shown me that I did not deserve. And I'm literally preaching here, looking around the room, seeing Brandon, seeing Aaron, remembering these faces from when I was an intern going, wow, man, I got a grace I didn't deserve. Or I think about a few weeks ago, um, I was on a really awesome streak of showing my wife how selfish I could be. I mean, day after day, like, have you ever seen a basketball game where a guy just can't miss a three-point shot? That's basically what I was doing with my selfishness. And so, like, every day I was giving Leah a new example of how prideful I could be. And there was this one day I was working at the office, and I was like, I owe her, like, 1,000 apologies for my attitude around the house. And so I sent this, like, two-minute apology video, like, babe, I'm so sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, just finding all these different ways to be like, I'm just not doing great. 
And my wife's awesome, so she responded and she said, I forgive you, but she didn't stop there. She went, I love you, I love your heart. You're so pure in heart, you're such a good husband. Basically, I think she was lying, um, but she believes and that's all that matters. <laughs> so she's just being so sweet, she's like, I love you, you're so awesome, like, don't, don't worry about it, I know your heart. And I just remember being like, I don't deserve this level of forgiveness. Like, just tell me it's okay and I better learn from it, right? <laughs> you know, but, but instead she's like being sweet in return. I just remember being like, wow, I don't deserve this kind of level of love. And one, one last example, I remember when Leah and I had first gotten married, uh, we owed money to one of our friends. We had just bought a house, and I can't remember why we had to borrow money, but we did. And so every month, like the next year, we were gonna pay it off. And I remember one day he called me and said, hey, we actually owed a debt to someone else, and they've completely forgiven it. And we just felt immediately the Lord telling us we need to forgive yours. And I remember being on speakerphone, looking across the living room at my wife, just jaw dropped to the floor like, Oh my gosh, we're gonna have so much money! No, I was just kidding. But I remember thinking, man, it's so awesome. Like, we didn't deserve this, right? Like, there's just something about getting an undeserved forgiveness, a debt that you owed lifted, that results in a big response. And that's the story we're getting into today. It's someone who understands there's a debt they cannot pay, and it's big, and it's been completely paid for not of their own work, but because someone else was completely generous. And because that debt was paid, out of the depths of their heart, they're able to love all the more. Like from the deepest places of her heart, she responds with this crazy love for Jesus. Today, it's gonna really help for you to have the passage out, for you to have the Bible out or, or your phone out and, and look at Luke 7 along with me because you wanna notice the details of this story. Because I wanna start walking through some of the context so you can appreciate, I think, all the more what is really going on here as Jesus is dining with Pharisees and this random woman walks in from off the street and does something outstanding. So let's dig in here. So let's give some context. First of all, there's a really nice dinner going down. Jesus is eating with Pharisees. And if you don't know who a Pharisee is or what they did, a Pharisee is basically like a religious elite person. They're a religious authority. I mean, they know scripture like, better than I ever will. They have a lot of stuff memorized. But if you're familiar at all with the Gospels, you already know this. The Pharisees aren't held in a great light in the Gospel because although they have the words of God, they actually use them not to show the heart of God, but to create a distance between them and who they perceive to be unholy people. And so they'd be really arrogant. Like It's like if you ever had a friend that whenever you're around them, you feel inferior, like how fun is that friendship really, right? It's like you either don't want that friend or you're just feeding an insecurity by being their friend, right? And so that's what the Pharisees are. When you're around them, you really don't feel good enough. And so Jesus is eating dinner with them and he's reclined at the table. And so picture a, a nice meal, but don't picture a table you would sit at. Uh, Jesus is most likely like kind of lying down. And I, I tried to think of a way to help you visualize how Jesus is laying down here. Um, picture if you had your laptop and you were FaceTiming your boo thing and you were like on a bed and you were sort of like, this shot. Have you ever done that shot on FaceTime before? Like, hey, uh, I don't want to do this homework. I'd rather talk to you. That kind of vibe, like that kind of posture. So it's like his chest, his shoulders, his face is near the table. His I wish I had a crowd. I wish that got more <laughs> laughter. I hope, please, hey, send me a text right now if you have my number and say, ha, 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 ha. Maybe feel good. I'm sweating up here. All right, anyway, so Jesus is at the table and uh, he's leaned like this. His feet are actually positioned at the back, okay? So he's kind of laying down, literally kind of reclined at the dinner table eating. And then suddenly this woman from the city, a perceived sinner, she walks in. And this might feel really random, but the random stuff is coming. But this part's not random at all. It was pretty common for an outsider, someone who, who may not be as wealthy, to show up to a nice dinner and to collect scraps of food. So it wasn't out of the ordinary that this woman comes in from off the streets, right? That They wouldn't have been like, wait, how'd you get here? They probably expected her to come in and to collect the scraps from a really nice meal. 
But it starts getting weird after that. So let's look at some of the things she does. So she shows up and immediately she's just a mess. I mean, she's just weeping. And we know that she's like ugly crying because she gets on the ground at the feet of Jesus and she cries enough to wet his feet. It's like, you know, when you like softly cry and it rolls down your cheek, but you know when you ugly cry, it's like dripping off of your face. That's the kind of crying that's going on here. And you can tell she's like so, she's in some kind of frenzy because as she's weeping, she doesn't have a rag or a towel to wipe his feet. She's using her hair. It's like, just picture like, just what would that be like to be crying so hard you can wet a man's feet and then you use your hair to clean them. And then it says that she begins to kiss his feet. This is just a remarkable moment. Uh, I don't know what you know about first century travel, but it doesn't look at all like it does today. Like there were no cars. Uh, maybe rich people had horses, I don't know. But for the most part, Jesus was walking by foot. And one of the things we love about Jesus is that he was always going from town to town to town. Like he walked more than the average person. And I don't know, know about you, but when I think about hugging Jesus, he's always odorless or he smells nice, but he was fully man, okay? And he walked around in sand and mud and he sweat, like he's in first century Palestine, like he's, his feet in this moment have not been washed. Just imagine the dirt, the sweat, the texture, the taste, and I know that's gruesome, but that's what this woman is kissing. She's kissing his feet. She's carrying an ointment that most likely would have been around her neck in an alabaster flask. She takes off the ointment and she anoints his feet. Now anointing someone really isn't, that's, that was custom in this day. Typically, if a guest of honor walked in a house, you would anoint their head to show them respect. What's unique about this moment is she anoints his feet. And as you continue to study more into the context here, when she lets her hair down to wash his feet, to wipe his feet off, this was actually really inappropriate in that day. You were never supposed to let your hair down in public. And so people that have studied this have, have said, man, given that she was willing to let her hair down probably means she lived like kind of a provocative life. Like she wasn't aware of what was custom. Like she was so outside of the cultural center, she didn't know how awkward she was being. So anyone but Jesus is looking at this going, what is happening? And I could not think of a parallel. I tried so hard to think of what this would be like. This is the best I got and it's not a good example, but listen to it anyway. <laughs> it's like being at a five-star restaurant and someone that you super look up to, you're buying their dinner. You're like, I just, I need you to feel the most honored and the most loved. And everyone's wearing suits and dresses. Like it's just really upscale. And then someone with tattered jeans comes in from off the street with a JBL Bluetooth speaker, starts playing loud country music and doing an interpretive dance in the middle of the restaurant. <laughs> Like, in all honesty, it was that discombobulating. It made that little sense. Like, Simon the Pharisee is watching this happen going, am I the only one watching this happen? Like, what is going on? And Scripture says that whether it was muffled underneath his breath or if he just thinks it, he goes, if Jesus, listen, to this, man, if Jesus was a prophet, if he basically, if Jesus was actually who he said he was, he would know who that is. And he would know who, what sort of person that is, and she wouldn't be anywhere near him. If Jesus knew who that was and what sort of woman that was, he would not be near her. This reminded me so much of what it's like to be in middle school or high school. And I hope you didn't have a bad experience in middle school or high school, but those ages can be brutal. People just do not hold back with gossip. Like I remember in high school, we knew who did what over the weekend, and no one was shy about talking about it. And I don't know if you've ever been the person that was being talked about, like you made some mistakes over the weekend, you drank a little too much, you did a little too much with that person, and then everyone at school was talking about it at their lockers, but my goodness, what an isolating place to be. I remember when I was reinstated at the school from being suspended, 
I remember walking to class and seeing people that were drastically affected by my decisions and how just sweaty I got. <laughs> I was just like, wow, like, man, so much has changed since the last time I saw your faces and you know what a big, huge failure I am. And if this woman had ever had any fears about walking into a room and feeling so known, but not in a good way, they were coming true right now. Because Simon knew this girl's backstory, whatever it was, we don't know much, but he goes, Jesus, not this one. Like, this is not the girl to hang around. And for the Pharisees, this was enough to like double down on social distancing. Like, you shouldn't be anywhere near her. And so then Jesus, whether he heard Simon muffle this under his breath or just read his thoughts as he could also do, which is pretty intrusive, he says, Simon, I have something to say to you. Totally unrelated to what you're thinking about, except for the fact that it is exactly related to what you're thinking about right now. And he tells this story of a moneylender who gives away different amounts of money. He gives a lot away to one person and then a little away to the other person, and they both owe. One owes big, one owes a little. Long story short, both debts are forgiven, and Jesus asks a simple question, Simon, who would love him more? And Simon does that answer that's not really an answer. He goes, I suppose, I think he'd heard a lot of teachings of Jesus where he kind of played tricks with his little parables, because he goes, I suppose, the one who was forgiven more? <laughs> and Jesus is like, yeah, I wasn't tricking you. Yes, the one who was forgiven more will love more. But then he goes, Simon, let's recap what's happened in this room so far since I've been at dinner, okay? First, she greeted me. You didn't greet me. She's the one that greeted me. Secondly, she kissed my feet. She washed them. You didn't do that, which would be pretty custom to like wash the guest's feet, but you didn't. She did. Like she anointed me. You didn't welcome me as a guest of honor. You didn't anoint my head, but she anointed my feet. Like, then he looks at the woman, and in verse 48 says, your sins are forgiven. So Jesus is making a, a really uh, awesome point to Simon here. He goes, Simon, when you access, like when you understand that there is sin in your life, when you understand your own depravity, you're able to access like this level of love. It was her awareness of her own brokenness that enabled her to come here and to display a love that you didn't even think to put on display for me. Like it was her own awareness of her own brokenness. And we live in this culture right now in 2020 where it's really popular to say, hey, it's okay not to be okay. And I will say that's like the first half of the gospel is understanding it's okay not to be okay. But it's another thing to go, it's okay not to be okay, and unless someone far greater than myself does something about it, I'll never be okay. It will never change. And this woman understands, like, I'm not okay, and I need help, and there's someone here to offer that help, and that the gospel says, Jesus knows you're not okay, but he doesn't wanna leave you in that spot. First step though, you've gotta recognize you're not okay. He goes, the difference between Simon and the woman is not the amount of sins they have. One person's aware, one person's completely unaware. And Jesus goes, this woman's aware. Her awareness of the gap has enabled her to receive my forgiveness and in response, lavish love all over me. Jesus goes, I do know who that woman is and what sort of person that woman is. When Simon knows it, it's a threat. When Jesus knows it, it's an invitation. You can come as close as you want. Jesus knows exactly who you are. As you sit in your living room, in your bed, on your porch, wherever you're at, he actually knows who you are. 
And he doesn't just see you like in a distant way. He knows what sort of person you are. He knows the thoughts that are running across your mind. He knows the actions that, that you've committed in the past week that you're like, if someone finds out, it might totally change the dynamic of our relationship. He knows all of it. And someone like Simon sees that as a reason to keep their distance, but someone like Jesus sees that and goes, come as close as you're comfortable. My grace is sufficient. He knows you, he knows what sort of person you are, and he is not flinching at any of the sin in your life, at any of your brokenness, at any of your secrecy, at any of your addiction, nothing. He's not flinching. You can come as close as you're comfortable. He's all in on you. You can be all in on him. But as we read the Greek in this passage, it unlocks something that the English language doesn't. When Jesus says in verse 48 that you are forgiven, like your sins are forgiven, the Greek actually says, your sins have been forgiven and they currently stand forgiven. Meaning that sometime before this encounter, this woman and Jesus knew each other and her sins had been forgiven. So the reason she walks into the room crying, it totally shifts the picture. She walks in crying because she's already been forgiven. And she's like, she's beside herself. There's this word undignified that sometimes you'll hear in church. And really it just means, act a fool, like you look foolish. When you're undignified, you're kind of going crazy a little bit. And that's what's happening to this woman. She walks in a forgiven woman, and every prophet before Jesus, every holy person before Jesus said, you're not good enough. And this prophet, who was more than a prophet, who was fully God, fully man, goes, you're forgiven. So she walks in that room beside herself, a fool. Have you ever heard the phrase, love makes you do crazy things? We love that phrase, we love love. It's so awesome. I think about the movie, The Notebook, and there's this really cheesy scene that I think is, I won't give my thoughts on it. It's great, if you like The Notebook, it's a great scene. And they have this couple, this like long lost soulmates are like rowing in a boat and it starts to rain. And so like normal humans, they get up and they get on the dock or the harbor, whatever that thing is that they get on and they start, they start walking and then they stop and they start having this conversation. And it's like a torrential downpour, okay? It's like, go inside, like find a tree. You're soaking wet right now. Like, either play in the rain or go inside. But don't just like have civil discourse while it's a torrential downpour outside. It's like a hurricane out here. But he's gotta like tell her how much he loves her and how he'll never give up. And then they start French kissing and everyone's just like, oh my gosh, that is so beautiful. Why, why, why do we think that's like, that's not normal? Because all of us on some level understand, like when you're deeply in love, you act foolishly and it's worth it, really. It makes sense that when our heart is so compelled by love, so strong that we just do things that do not make sense anymore. It reminds me of the story of King David in 2 Samuel. The Ark of the Covenant has come to his camp and it has the living presence of God. He's the king at this time, it's King David. And he starts dancing in the streets. I mean, looking like a complete fool. At this time, kings don't dance in the streets. That makes no sense. And his critics go, David, you look ridiculous. Like, stop, you're a king, stop doing this. And David goes, you don't get it. The presence of God is, has met me here. Like, the presence I long for, the presence I was made to dwell in, it made it here. And so I will dance before him. And there's so, something so powerful about what's happening in this woman's story in Luke 7. It's like she has no idea she's in a Pharisee's house. She has no idea she just interrupted a dinner. She goes, the presence of God has met my life 
and met it with forgiveness. And so out of the depths, I know how broken I am and that I've received that forgiveness. I have to respond out of the deepest places of love because it was the deepest places of brokenness that love met me. She becomes undignified in the presence of God. And there's this moment for all of us where I think we have to understand that even if life is perfect, if for the rest of your days it'd be 70 degrees, you're living in Cabo, you have your soulmate, you're expecting your first child, if every day was like that and you're on an island with all your best friends, you would find a way to be wicked. You would. Like, if everything was perfect, nothing ever went wrong in your life, on your best days, over and over again, you would find ways to be wicked. There is something healthy about going. When I stand before a perfect God who knows not wickedness, who knows not unrighteousness, when I stand before a perfect God, I don't stand a chance. Like if I look back over my life, I can find example after example after example of pride, of lust, of selfishness, of brokenness. Like it's just a long list. And then that same breath going, but God, but God has met me. And in the same breath of listing out my like sin debt that I actually owe something for. I really do. I owe something. God goes in the same breath. My grace is sufficient. And it's a healthy thing as a child of God, or if you're not even a child of God yet, to acknowledge your sin debt and then acknowledge that Jesus has met it and paid it all. It is sufficient that allows us to rejoice, to become undignified. When's the last time you worshiped in such a way that if someone walked in the room, you'd have to go, hold on, let me explain. (laughs) Like, let me explain why I was walking around my room with AirPods in dancing like an idiot. Let me explain why I was singing so loud off key. I didn't know you were home, but I was just worshiping. Let me explain why when you opened the door, I was face down on my carpet because I just can't figure out an appropriate posture before such a holy and beautiful and loving God. That's what I feel is being invited into, that whether you're a Christian or not, there's this invitation to understand the gap, the sin gap, the wages we owe the Lord that have been totally removed because of the goodness of Jesus. Jesus says, your faith has saved you. That's it. You could never make it up in your works, ever, ever. Your faith alone has saved you. That just by putting our faith in Jesus, our sin debt is wiped away. And out of that, we get to respond undignified as a fool, like God, your presence has met my life. You've met my life. Because of that, I respond and you're my, you are the people, you are the, the God I wanna entertain. I'm not worried about the crowds. I'm not worried about who else is in the room. It's just you, Lord. I love you. Thank you. And so there's this gift and understanding that God knows you. He knows who you are and what sort of person you are. And that's the best news you could ever hear. That he knows exactly who you are, exactly what you're up to, and he loves you. So I wanna ask you this morning, how will you live this out? What will you do with this word? Will you be like Simon? He's judgmental. He's not a welcoming host for Jesus. It seems like he's better than Jesus. He doesn't really agree with Jesus. He's condescending. He knows too much to accept the goodness of the Lord. Or you'd be like this woman, understanding that even on your best days, like it's not enough. And that without Jesus, you're hopeless, but you have Jesus and out of that responding with this love. And so as we go to communion, I wanna invite you, whether you're a Christian or not, to wrestle with this, that if you don't understand communion, we take communion, we take the bread, 
and we remember that just like the woman running to the table and kissing Jesus' feet, we can go as close to God as we're willing to go because God first came close to us. We eat the bread, remembering that God became flesh. It's like, oh, that's right, the, the bread represents Jesus' flesh, which is important because God is not some weird, cloudy God. Like, He became man. He drew near. So when you eat the bread this morning, remember that He drew near, that He became flesh, God incarnate. And then when you drink the cup, we drink the cup remembering that one day, this may not be a popular message, but one day we're gonna die. And when we die, we will come alive in the presence of God. And if left to our own devices, we won't have anything to say. But the cup reminds us that Jesus shed innocent blood, that was our blood we owed, but Jesus shed innocent blood to cover us that when we stand before the presence of God, we will stand proudly and in perfection because of the grace of Jesus, if you have faith. Faith in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. So as you take the cup, remember the sacrifice Jesus made for you. Think about all the sins you've committed, all the sins you will commit, and then drink that cup remembering that His grace is fully sufficient. And I invite you this morning to worship undignified, whether you're with people or not, to worship the Lord out of that sin gap being completely covered, that chasm being completely covered. Jesus is as comfortable as you are with going all in. So as we take communion, remember uh, just how good God is, how much He loves you. And let's, come be un let's become undignified in His presence. Let's take communion.